Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast. I am Patrick Macias, the author of the new book, Mondo Tokyo. And I'm Matt Alt, the author of Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. 75, wow. Do you remember when one comic book cost only 75 episodes of a podcast, Matt? 75% of my time on any given day to read through over the course of my childhood? Wow, I don't feel an episode older than 74. Big difference, I know, I know. It's a big milestone in a podcast life when they hit 75. You know, changes are going to start happening in your body, and that's normal. It's it's natural, uh, and in your podcast. So what's on the agenda for today? As we have a mix of news and uh, some features revolving around the wacky world of Japanese toys. So you might want to hold on uh, for that if you're into that sort of thing. Not that uh, I make any judgments about it. (laughs) No kink shaming. No kink shaming, Patrick. Speaking of which, Matt, I saw on your Twitter recently that you've been building a model kit of something called, was it a QAnon? What's it called? It's true, Patrick. I've accepted the tenets into my life. Uh, I do believe that the Zentradi fleet did wipe out Macross Island in 1999 and that humanity has actually been floating in space ever since. It's all just a big fantasy. Um, it's all part of my anime fantasy. Yes, I after a, a many, 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 many year hiatus, I picked up a model kit of the, I, I can barely even pronounce it in English, the female Zentradi power armor, Quadlin Row? Quidlin? Quid- what did people just annotated as like a Q Rao. Q dash Rao. That's what we all call it. QAnon. Okay. I it is like look. QAnon, but it's actually more like pink lady. It's a giant pink armored like lady robot suit. I actually, it's it's one of my favorite designs from the early Macross series. It's like one of the rare examples in recent memory of a kind of female looking design that doesn't like play up secondary sexual characteristics. Like it, it's not like some weird fetishistic thing with a giant chest or like giant hips. It's just got these like evocative curves and things like that that hint at femininity without being like sexualized i don't know i uh wow i think too much about this kind of thing but it's cool and i built this kit and it was it was quite relaxing and refreshing i i it's hasegawa 172nd scale it sells for about 4800 yen i think in japan what is that three dollars in in u.s dollars with the current exchange rate no i think that's the fine you get if you get uh, thrown out of japan for kick streaming isn't it <laughs> so i'm a grown-ass man who spent his saturday in Indoors building a powered suit model kit from 40 ass years ago. It was a good day to do it because the weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. It snowed. What happened? What's happened? It was like a sunny day in Tokyo on Saturday morning. And then like by afternoon, like the clouds rolled in. And then suddenly like I hear this, this like hail hitting outside. I had to, I actually had to get up from building my model kit and look out the window. It was weird. There's a whole world out there. I'm pretty sure Nostradamus predicted this in 1999. There might be some snow (laughs) in Tokyo in mid-January. I was actually happy because this has been a incredibly warm winter here in Tokyo. It's like unseasonably, weirdly not wintry at all. I mean, it's normally we would have had a little bit of snow maybe, or it would have been freezing cold in at least a couple days, but it's been just a very strange 2023 and early 2024 weather-wise. Okay. Now about this model kit, Matt, I'm curious. I haven't made a kit in a long time. That's pretty much all I did from the age of like 12 to Yes, like 15 or so was make model kit. But uh, does this require all them paints? Do I have to get a bunch of testers paints and Mr. Paint? <laughs> 
God, I remember those in the little in the little crack vials. I remember those. They would sell them at the drugstore alongside. Do I have drugs. to get my airplane glue? Do I have to get my sandpaper? Like, how much of an investment? The answer to your question, Patrick, is no. You don't need any of these things. Um, actually, it's pretty amazing. The kit it doesn't need any glue uh, unless you want to sniff some while you're making it. It doesn't require any paint. It doesn't require anything except your undying love for things macross, which I think you have an ample uh, sure. Amount. I have enough to spare if you need but some. But yeah. it was ironically, like I, I haven't built a model kit really since like I graduated from high school. And the last kit that I built was of this same character, the Q Rao. Uh, it was the old Bondi 1144th kit. So this was kind of a return to roots. You know, I was getting in touch with my uh, my spiritual, my roots, my- Your first best destiny. Yeah. Exactly. And now it's standing on my desk. I actually, you know, it was the first time in literally 30 years I put like water slide decals on anything. I'd forgotten. Oh my God. No, I mean, it was like a throwback. Those stress me out. Those trigger my anxiety, Matt. Even even the mention of the water decals. If only I'd had some wedding fluid. I know they had like special fluids and things for like doing that when I was a kid. I'm sure they do now, but I was just like using water and ripping them up to shreds and putting them on and fitting them together. It was cool. It was fun. It has that same kind of meditative aspect that building like Lego kits has as an adult, Uh, or maybe it's just contemplative and meditative are the words you use to convince yourself you're not a grown man playing with toys in the ball pit in the safe space with your coloring books kidulting is that what they call it matt on the it's internet? the great regression it's uh, you know and we are the poster children of it i think no but seriously how long did it take you because at one point you did send me a picture of like what the status of your life and it was a pile of model uh, yes. kit parts and i'm like that's going to take matt at least two or three weeks man I don't no know no no actually it. i mean I, it was it, it was a long afternoon but it just it just took one afternoon it's not that complicated of a kit and it's since all the parts are molded in color and stuff you don't have to be like obsessive about you know figuring out what i mean you could paint it if you wanted to but you don't need to and modern day kits like bandai kind of pioneered this is a hasegawa kit um and they're like a major the 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 major brands of model kit makers in japan are like bandai hasegawa tamiya and slugworths willy wonka fickle gruber remco um the like modern day model kits are basically unassembled toys like they're they're just you, you can kind of slap them together and you don't really you don't have to paint them or do anything or use any glue so it's kind of cool and they're also a lot cheaper than toys you know like if this thing were being sold as a completed object i'm sure it would have cost a lot more than four thousand yen or whatever for it so now you're gonna just like fill it up with like m80s and firecrackers and just like blow that sucker up right right model rocket engines um what other kind of explosives were equal were easily available to kids back in the 1980s i was never a big blower upper of my model kits uh (laughs) although i will admit like you know putting rocket engines and some of them to see how like far they could go. You didn't want to do that because you had to like buy them at like yes. inflated prices from like Crooks Nippon or something like that. You couldn't abuse your stuff from Japan. If you did, you were a bad kid. No, and I had to like save up for that stuff too. So it was like, you know, we had to, to when, when I was a kid, we had to buy, you know, model kits, Japanese model kits from like specialty catalogs, like in my neck of the wo- Cosmic Connection, Alpha Sector. Uh, there was another one in California, like Nippon Imports or something. Like, Do you mean Crooks Nippon, man? Are you referring no, to- No, no, no. This is, it was different. It was different. It was like a model kit with Crooks Nippon. God, I haven't heard that in a long- You mean books, Nippon? Yes, I remember that. The too. Statue of Limitations is still open, Matt. <laughs> There's going to be some Senate hearing debates whether they really are the Crooks Nippon or the books Nippon, I think. A kimono My House. Actually, I don't think the Kimono My House did. Did they do mail order? It's a good question. We have to ask Orion Salazar or uh, Susan Horn. The city demolished by Godzilla looks more like a ghost town now. This city, 
built with the most modern technology, was destroyed in just one day. This is CCN reporter Susan Horn in Tokyo. Anyway, kits used to be really hard to come by and they were impossible to build, like unless you were a like, you know, Hollywood grade special effects model building technician. But now they've gotten a lot easier. So if you are feeling the hunger for some plastic in your life, uh, I recommend Hasegawa, Bandai, Tamiya, etc, etc. And this is not a commercial. We're doing this out of the kindness of our hearts. But if Hasegawa does want to buy some advertising. <laughs> exactly. Hasegawa. Mr. Hasegawa, are you still, are you out there, Mr. Hasegawa? It's me, Matt. Um, I wonder, I wonder if there is a, I mean, Hasegawa is a family name. I wonder if like the Hasegawa clan is still in charge of Hasegawa plastic model kits. That would be kind of cool if they were. I'll never forget this moment. We were at the Tokyo Hobby Show, you and me, and Mr. Tamiya like showed up, like the curtains <laughs> yes. parted. There was like a ray of light. It was like the transporter effect from Star Trek. And yes. there in front of us, yes. by the grace of God, was Mr. Tamiya. And everyone like ran towards him to like kiss the ring. All I know is I, I, I dream of meeting the mythical, who's Mr. Bondi? John Bondi. In 1987, he founded the company that made our dreams come true. Actually, Bondi is is not a family name. He escaped from a military stockade with a crack team of commandos or something like that. The B team, the Bondi team. The B club, the B club, Matt. club, yes. Remember when we scraped together all of our money to pay for what amounted to corporate advertising, (laughs) which is the B club was and Hobby Japan was and all of those model building magazines? I would read these model building magazines obsessively as a kid get a kit, destroy it, and then like go through the process again. Not destroying it because I was being a jerk or anything, just destroying it because I lacked the skills to, to build it well. And I, I don't know what kept bringing me back again and again. And I paid huge amounts of money for the magazines too. One of those things, like one of the kids would find an issue of B-Club in their dad's sock drawer and everyone would kind of like <laughs> pass it around on the playground after school. My non-existent children would be finding plenty of stuff like that in my sock drawer, I can promise you. Meanwhile, on to news. Should we should we do some news or do you just want to go straight into the... Uh... No, no, I, I just, I want to talk about model kits for the next three hours. Come on, bring it on. No, I'm just kidding. Let's talk about, let's talk about real news, Patrick. Because okay. I think some real things are happening on the streets of Japan right now, are they not? Yeah, I was enjoying that conversation so much that it's time to get mad about something so here we go <laughs> here's the news matt johnny's somali verdict is in got slap on the wrist fine and banned from japan a japanese court has found american kick streamer johnny somali guilty of criminal obstruction of a business fine 200,000 yen or 1381 dollars in usd he must leave japan possibly via deportation with an entry ban to japan now, I don't want to tell you how I know this information, Matt, but I have been told that when you get an STD in Japan, it's punitive. The doctor makes it hurt when he cures you, so you don't <laughs> do it again. Johnny Somali got a slap on the wrist, dude. That's like nothing. His fine is like literally like less than I have to pay taxes this year. So getting serious for a moment, the, there's a couple problems here, at least of which is that there are idiots like this out on the streets causing trouble. Like J- Japanese society is just completely unprepared for people like this and for nuisance streamers in general who like truck and traffic in like the bending of of common sense and and you know kind of trespassing on on people's generosity and and goodwill i don't know what they were supposed to do because there's probably not any rules on the book specifically about streaming so they probably had to kind of like kick him out under just antisocial ordinances rules whatever it's obstruction of business wasn't it that's what they got him on yeah so it's like i think we're 
in the in the phase right now when like you know before like the idea of a hate crime came into you know and that would add a penalty onto something if you were doing it because you were prejudiced or racist like i think in the future we are probably going to see like streaming as a crime uh, if you were causing a nuisance because of streaming that could that could potentially rack up some additional you know fines or charges or whatever but right now there isn't anything like that and it is Kind of a bummer because this guy is going to like, you know, he did just spend three months in a Japanese prison or Japanese jail, I guess you should say, which is probably not a very pleasant place to be. I haven't been in one, so I wouldn't know, but it's, uh, yeah. And, and like, I don't, I'm not somebody who revels in other people's misery. You know, I don't want this guy to, you know, wind up in the clink for life, but is he going to stop doing what he's doing? I don't think so. I think another issue is, is this guy mentally ill? He sure seems to be. Um, and so at what point? does that enter into the calculus? I don't know. It's I'm kind of glad he's not here anymore. But on the other hand, he's nowhere near the last person who's going to do stuff like this, whether they're foreign or domestic or whatever. So kind of a complicated feels about this one. How about you? Yeah, I did see this movie, Female Prisoner Scorpion. And no, <laughs> Japanese prisons don't seem like a very nice place. I, I wouldn't want to go to one necessarily. But yeah, the part that pisses me off is the fine. Like take this guy for all he's worth. And he's not probably not worth very much, but theoretically he's just going to, turn around and then just try to monetize his time in prison with a bunch of like YouTube videos or him, you know, thumbnails of him going, here's how bad a Japanese prison is. You know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, was it, I don't know. This whole thing is just kind of icky. I, 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 it sucks because there are streamers out there who are actually doing good work and doing interesting things. I've actually worked with them, a uh, cool things. And this is very much not cool. Japan. This is uncool Japan. So I, you know, but like I was saying, you know, this guy, I, you, you know, I'm never saying his name because he just doesn't deserve to have his name said out loud. This guy is is just the tip of the iceberg. There's all sorts of like really problematic Japanese nuisance streamers now who just cause nuisances in ways that are different than the kind of blockheaded asshole ways that American uh, kick streamers do. There's been problems with them at the in Ishikawa prefecture with like showing up at the uh, disaster site of the earthquake and like kind of bringing in like bringing in supplies and stuff, which is good, but they're telling people to stay out because you know they need to make room for actual rescue workers and stuff like that. And these guys are way more interested in getting like eyeballs on their channel than they are in actually helping people. Didn't think I would ever say this, but I'm actually getting nostalgic for the guys with the free hug signs. Before Corona, that's what you had to do to get attention in this wacky town. I've been coming to Japan long enough that I remember in the 90s, in the early 90s, there was another cult that would like, like they would stop you outside of Shibuya Station and like read your aura. And then like, you know, you'd have to put your like hands together. And like, I did it a couple of times and I always like, how do you feel afterwards? And I'd be like, hungry. I'm going to go get some ramen. You know, like, Kind of, kind of thing, but it, I don't know who the heck those guys were. They got driven off, but yes, uh, maybe we can drive off the nuisance streamers just like we did the cults outside of Shibuya. We can all work together on this. We're actually already seeing signs of this, literal signs, because there's a lot of places that are now posting no streaming, no selfies, no cameras. No phone, no light, no motor car, not a single luxury. If Gilligan's Island is on my brain, it's because I've been mainlining it. I found a way to watch it here in Japan, and I have to say the episode of Gilligan's Island where the Japanese soldier who thinks he's still fighting World War II washes up on the island has not aged particularly well, Matt. Is that a real episode? You believe it. Oh, we need to watch that together. Let's watch. Is it, I'm sure, is it a really, is it a really subtle and sensitive take on U.S.-Japanese relations? It's a scathing indictment of American imperialism, Matt. So if this podcast is Gilligan's Island, which one of us is Gilligan and which one of us is the professor, which is Mary? There's only two of us, Matt. Uh, I don't, this is like the three-body problem. Is that what they call this? <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, did you see? I, I really liked the Three Body Problem books. Have you seen the images they've released for the Netflix version? I haven't. No. They were, oh my god, they looked so. It looked literally like '90s era George Lucas. You know, Star Wars. We're not going to film these on sets anymore. We're just going to drop a green sheet behind everybody and film it. Let's just do that. And it, I don't know. I it didn't look good to me. I really liked the books. I had high hopes for the series, but um, I mean, my standard for televised entertainment is basically Gilligan's Island. That's the bar, okay? Wait a second, wait a second. Has Gilligan's Island displaced Buck Rogers in your in your head canon? Is, is that what we're calling this now? What, There's only it? two seasons of Buck Rogers. There's three seasons of Gilligan's Island, so... Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. How many seasons of Love Boat? Because that might just trump I them don't all. know. There's that Love Boat Goes to Japan episode that we definitely need to watch. Oh my that God. That is brutal in my noodle. It's literally like Isaac and Gopher go to a pachinko parlor and like Isaac starts stealing his balls and that's not a euphemism for something that's literally what happens is this like the white ships sailing into Edo Harbor not the black ships that opened up Japan in the 1850s it's like when the love boat came and opened Japan the last the problem is in my mind now like in, in Japan coronavirus actually came to Japan with a cruise ship the princess cruise liner or whatever it was was that the love boat or was it the hate was the, boat the death boat I think is how that one worked out <laughs> it was bad that was bad that was, that was really bad Speaking of the gates of hell opening up, Matt, the next news story here, Beckett Collectibles announced a new service to, quote, professionally grade manga. Beckett Collectibles, which offers grading for comics, cards, and VHS tapes, among other items, is expanding its services to include manga. The company offers professional evaluation of condition, verification or authentication of signatures, and encapsulation in a plastic slab. Standard price for grading is $30 per book, and encapsulation alone will cost $20. <laughs> you said slab. No, I you know third-party grading services, Patrick. Put them on the slab, Matt. <laughs> I you know, third-party grading services. Okay, let's just for those who aren't complete like nerds, third-party grading services are these kind of parasitic companies that sprung up. They started in the 80s with coin collectors, and they purport to offer a expert eye and opinion to tell you what the condition of and thus potential value might be of the collectibles in your your collection. And I think it started in the 80s with coins and then like it kind of moved on to like baseball cards and stuff like that. And then slightly more recently, starting like me like 20, 25 years ago, like comic books. And the the way it works is you mail your thing into these guys and then they they're they're professional graders, like give it assign it a value on like a point scale. You know, let's say 10 is, is perfect and zero is like it's totally a pile of dust on the ground. And then they seal it in this tamper-proof plastic box, which they call a slab. And then you now have no longer a piece of entertainment that moved you as a child or that or that can entertain you, but a featureless case that is now an asset that you can trade like an NFT. You can file it on your shelf and you can take it out. You can you can put them in a bathtub and swim around in them like Scrooge McDuck if you don't mind getting like, you know, cuts all over now your I body. Now, I can kind of understand this, how it applies to things like antique coins or like baseball cards from like 70 years ago or even some of those comic books, you know, the, like the first issue of Superman. Right. The first issue of Spider-Man, but manga? They're not even talking about Japanese manga. They're talking about like localized manga, like Viz manga, like Tokyo pop manga. Like it's just bizarre to see people fetishize 
plagiarizing English translations of manga like that. I think where what comes, you know, collectors for collectors, their their the, their collections are part of their identities. It's just it's just how it works. And so I kind of understand, you know, and and you want to preserve this stuff, you know, it belongs in a museum, Patrick. So I kind of understand that kind of that preservation instinct. And also, you don't want to think you're losing money on anything because you can then justify to your mommy or your wife or your daddy or whoever that all of this money that you are spending on ephemera actually will pay off in the long run. You know, like when somebody shows you their collection of transform, like, this is worth thousands. And it's like, well, if you sell it, you know, if you sell it, this is why I never really talk about the value of my collection because I don't care for one thing. And how much is worth that? How much is it worth? It's all, yeah, I, I, only, I deal in futures, Patrick. I see futures you could never imagine. Imagine like where that that vinyl I paid five dollars for when I was a kid is going to be worth ten dollars. I see a future where the castaways get off the island and meet the Harlem Globetrotters. Actually, you know, I was gonna I was gonna joke about you sealing away your Gilligan's Island videotapes in in those slabs, but people really are sealing videotapes in slabs and like trading them now. And it's just like there's actually and there's also other issues with this, like who grades the graders, like literally. So like in a situation dealing with like the toys that that I collect like Jumbo Machineers and Chogokin. I don't think they, they actually, there are grading services who handle that sort of thing, but I'm like, how are these people more equipped to tell what this, what the condition of this is than I am? You know, I'm like, I'm like, you know who you're talking to here? I want to pick up the phone of these guys. Do you know who I am? On a serious note, it's like, how can you trust these people to, to, that they're actually experts in their field? But there is like this weird element of scarcity to a lot of these titles have gone out of print. And like, if you wanted to pick up a volume of something that's out of print on like Amazon Marketplace. Some people will jack up those prices like hundreds of dollars on something that doesn't seem very rare, but actually it might be. But it's very weird because I don't see people in Japan professionally grading manga like this. No, no, not maybe Mandarake. I mean, the 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 way manga are consumed in Japan is just so fundamentally different from the way comic books are consumed in America. You read the story first in a like a weekly or a monthly companion like Shonen Jump or Shonen Sunday or like, you know, Afternoon or whatever. And then those are compiled into the Tankobon volumes and they're printed in huge numbers. And like in Japan, the focus is still on the data, the content itself and not on the object. But in the West, especially starting big time when we were kids, like in junior high school, I remember it's like it, it, it became about the comic book as an object in the West. Like what is this going to be worth in the future? Matt, the first issue of Rom the Space Knight is going to be a big collection. <laughs> collector's item someday. You better get multiple copies of that. Yeah. The best thing is like, you know, you could only, for most of these things, you're hoping to make like 10 or $15 off what you paid for it. It's like, it's really small potatoes. But anyway, in Japan, like, you know, you could get old, like 1940s and 50s manga for, uh, not 40s, but like 1950s and 60s manga for pretty cheap until recently. And it's only been like in the last 10 years or so that Mandarake in particular has like put really high prices on this stuff. But it's, I don't know, like I just don't think the idea of a comic book as a commodity exists nearly as much here. And you can't collect all of the first, like for instance, let's just say One Piece or Dragon Ball. You know, to get the very first editions of all of those things, like as they were serialized in the very beginning, you would need like a tractor trailer to hold all of the Shonen Jumps that they were in. So it's just physically impossible to start with, and that stuff is printed on some really crappy paper. Yeah. Too. I mean, I guess we could blame Mandarake for like the kind of increase in what we call crazy grandma prices that you see on like Merc Harry and Yahoo right. Auction for some of that stuff. Right. But right. to me, it was like there were first editions of things like Osamu
Osamu Tezuka's manga, and then there's like everything else. It's like a giant cliff that things go off. But what we need to do is we need to start buying some of this manga at Mandaraka and then sending it to these guys to get it professionally graded, Matt, and then we're in the money. Oh, hey. Hey, maybe we can fund this. We can fund episode 76 of this podcast that way. We'll make millions, maybe even hundreds. I, uh, I'm just excited that my Maya the Psychic Girl collection might be worth something finally. I uh, actually really liked that comic when I was a kid. Is that Ryoichi Ikegami? I can't remember. Yeah, Ikegami drew that. it. I forgot who wrote it. But uh, yeah, again, Bronson? if there's some way we can like create generative AI that can make the My the Psychic Girl movie that I'm obsessed with, that Tim Burton was going to direct, starring Winona Ryder. Total side note, like I am seriously still in love with a lot of the manga series that were released in translation in the 1980s, and almost none of them are popular in Japan. Like literally, it's really interesting. Like they hand picked manga series they thought would be of interest to American comic book readers. So it's all stuff featuring like psychics and like superheroes, you know, like Xenon. Remember that? You would be hard pressed to find a Japanese person, even an otaku who knew the title of that. I mean, I worked at Viz in the mail order department for like four or five years. So, I mean, there was like Lycanthrope Leo. Uh, I remember Xenon. The Giver. The Giver was one that's like- The Giver. The Giver. That, that was the prequel to McGyver, right? It was just the MacGyver and then MacGyver. Is that how that worked? And then do you remember 2001 Nights? That was like that really awesome, yeah. like hard SF thing. Horobi. Horobi. Remember that? Oh, yeah, I remember Hirobi Hirobi. I'm trying to think of some other ones. Gray Digital Target. Roger Harkavy. Are you listening? Gray? Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> Let's all get them professionally graded before someone else does it and we're out of it. Because we slept during that whole NFT thing. We slept during that whole crypto thing. And look at us now, Matt. God, NFTs. Remember those? Remember that? Remember that long, long ago trend of six months ago? I remember I remember it like it was six months ago. Well, but actually there's a real, I think there's overlap actually, mentally speaking, between like the idea that you can kind of like package a, like a JPEG and sell it for huge amounts of money and package a videotape and sell it for huge amounts of money. They're both equally useless in their, you know, in, in their in their existing forms. And then, you know, people are speculating on them and making money off them and losing money on them. It belongs in a museum. Don't ask me. I voted for my the cycle. Wait, girl. speaking of which, we should talk a little bit about today's feature since we were almost hitting the half hour mark here. You wanted to talk about this toy shop that you found in Hokkaido? What, what's going collections. on? Collections. Collections. No, actually, this is on topic because we've been talking about collections. So yeah, I uh, do, do you want to break for a message from our commercial sponsor that doesn't exist or do you want me to just launch right into this? We need to put in the vegetable soup theme or something in here.
serving up a cup of vegetable soup for our souls now. Uh, let me tell you about this interesting experience I had. So a couple weeks ago, maybe months ago now, I was asked by John of the Only in Japan podcast to join him on a journey, a very special journey to a converted barn slash warehouse in Hokkaido that was being used to store this incredible collection of toys. And uh, so we got in the plane and went to snowy Nobori Betsu, which is about an hour away from Sapporo by car. And it's this one horse town, like, like very, like no building is taller than two stories. The streets are completely desolate at night. There's like a supermarket. There's like a, a couple bars. There's like a couple, like, you know, hostels. Cause it's near a uh, kind of near a ski are resort. Are there like two rival gangs of outlaw samurai who are like fighting for control of the city? I wish, but what there is, is an actual toy store, like an old school toy store run by old people who've been running it since like the late 1960s. And it's right there on the main street. And it's like, there's actually like old stuff on the shelves and things like that. Still like dead stock from years ago. But the point of this is, is that the, the gentleman who founded this place and, and still kind of runs it has this giant warehouse that he's converted into a museum. And it's like all stuff that like, it's, it's different. There are other toy museums in Japan. Like there's the tin toy museum in Yokohama and there's a couple others scattered throughout Japan. But this is the only one I'm aware of that was actually run by a guy who ran a toy store. So like his views on this whole thing, his name is Mr. Wakaki and it's just, it was pretty incredible. So John and I just kind of spent that an entire day going through this place. He has it, there's all sorts of stuff in there, like old, like Nintendo's very first toy, like early Chogokin, early Transformers, early like digital toys, early plastic toys, early tin toys. It's like a kind of history of Japanese toys in this one incredibly cold, freezing cold room. And we posted the video of it. It's on YouTube now. If you search for, I have to look this up. If you search for it on YouTube, you can find it. You ask me some questions while I look that up. Did he call you Whitey like that guy in Nakano Broadway once did in his antique toy store? No, but you know, he did say something awesome, which is that uh, like, Toys R Us is the enemy. <laughs> Which I thought, well, he means like, you know, once upon a time in Japan, toy stores were run like all mom and pop shops. But then like starting in the 80s, like big box Toys R Us and other big box retailers started to come in. And there's no way these little toy stores could compete with those guys on just like because they were buying in huge volumes and able to sell at much like much smaller margins. So he's basically like Toys R Us in those places put all of the mom and pop shops out of business. So like Jeffrey the Giraffe, Jeffrey Dollars, Baby G, all that kind of stuff just triggers his anxiety and he... Well, jokes jokes on Toys R Us because they're out of business now too. Actually, I saw that Toys R Us went out of business in the States, but then I started to see there's there's new ones. The closest one to me is in Ikebukuro. There is definitely a Toys R Us in Sunshine City there. I sampled their wares a few months ago. They never left Japan. They were always, it's kind of like Tower Records or like Mr. Donut, like Toys R Us survives in Japan. Anyway, the YouTube video is called Japanese Toys That Changed the Game. It's on Only in Japan. If you look for that channel and you'll see John and maybe my uh, smile link face on the thumbnail but it was really interesting stuff and it's the first time like you and i actually have spent a lot of time talking to like japanese toy creators and like japanese toy company people but this was the first time i ever sat down for a long time with a dude who sold toys like at a toy store like the only thing he cares about is does a product sell or not you know what i mean like it's not to him it's just a commodity did you ask him about captain power and the soldiers of the future or anything like that did that do really well for him <laughs> did they win that war in the future mad balls did mad balls or boglins come up at all they did not 
I want to take you up to this place. No, it sounds great. What were some of the rarest cuts that, as a toy collector, you were like that made you raise your eyebrow? Unfortunately, he admitted that in the early 2000s, people from Mandarake and also collectors from outside of Japan somehow got wind of his place and descended on mass and made him and his wife offers they couldn't refuse. Isn't this like the opening of Inglorious Bastards? They just showed up and like they had to serve him like coffee and pie. Unfortunately, he did not save any of his, of the really rare stuff under the floorboards. But um, so it's like there's not a lot of incredibly rare stuff in there from like a kind of value, like a, a cost perspective. But what there is is a lot of just really interesting from a historical perspective. So like for me, the most amazing thing I found there was the Ultra Hand by Nintendo. It's the first toy Nintendo ever made in the 60s. It's like this Looney Tunes style accordion. You have two sticks and when you press them together, it accordions out like a giant claw and you can grab things with it. Wait, I found an old ad for this a few months ago and posted it. It's like a Japanese family like in the Brady Bunch's living room. So that toy was created by a guy named Gunpei Yokoi in the 60s and he went on to like make all of Nintendo's amazing stuff. Like Nintendo was like a playing card company before he came along and then he basically single-handedly transformed it into a toy company. So like the light gun mechanism that was used in that Sunny Chiba laser clay shooting range of the 70s and then the light gun sold with the Nintendo Entertainment System. The, the Game & Watch, he came up with that. Like he was fiddling around with a calculator and realized- He wrote shell oil on a calculator by turning the numbers upside down. <laughs> what was it? 800- And he invented the Game Boy. He went on to make the Game Boy. Do you know, Patrick? Do you know? So anyway, that was good pay Yokoi's first toy, the Ultra Hand, and I'd only seen it in books, and I found it like underneath a pile of like other stuff in this guy's museum. I was like, oh my god! So it's like, and he actually let us play with it. He's like, I don't care, play with it. And I was like, oh man, wow. This is, I'm like, this belongs to a museum. We are in a museum. Didn't Michelangelo do a painting of like God touching like man with like the Ultra Hand kind of stretching it out there? I, I love the Ultra Hand because it's just yet another example. Like everything was ultra. It's like 1967, when it came out and like of course there's Ultraman there's also Ultra B the, the Fujiko F. Fujio Ultra Baby thing like it's all because of that like in the 1964 Olympics one of the gymnasts won with a floor routine that had like a technique called the Ultra something in it and so everything was called Ultra for a while that's really Ultra man but uh, it was a really cool trip uh, and it was really interesting hanging out with a YouTuber like John his channel is interesting it's kind of like Japanology Plus but all done by him. So like if you're into stuff like, you know, just everyday Japanese things, he has episodes on like explaining Japanese school uniforms or like, you know, going behind the counter. How about jumping over the counter at Japanese restaurants or putting cameras on the uh, sushi conveyor belts? That would be a nuisance stream. And that's not what John does. He's actually, John, I will say he's like one of the nicest guys I've ever met. He is literally the opposite of a nuisance streamer. He's like, what do you, what would a respectful stream, what, what would you call this? A, a courteous streamer? Um, and which is why he's made such a great, you know, channel and, and living off of this. So check it out if you can. It's a really cool episode on Japanese toys. We got to go there. We got to raid this place. We got to put it in a museum, my museum, in my room, in my house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually, I, I was, I was like, should I make some? Was offers? he just waiting for you guys to buy something? Are you guys gonna buy something or what? No, 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 no. And it, it's not a store. It's not a store. It, it's, a, it's a, 
a museum. Like there is a toy store that's affiliated with it, but it's like, you know, a couple blocks away. And if you go in there, like literally there's like Doug Ram toys on the shelves. There's like Chogokin on the shelves. It's like stuff that just didn't sell back in the eighties and it's still there. And they've marked it up a bit. The actual toy shop, not the museum, but the actual toy shop is set up into like sections where there's like a bunch of stuff for kids and there's stuff for kind of more, you know, stationary and things like that. And then like, they know that this stuff is old and it's worth more than what the cover price or whatever you call it is the manufacturer's retail price was. So it's marked up a bit, but um, it's not like Mandarake levels and it's Nobori Betsu, man. It's not like there's like tons of toy collectors descending on this, but it's tough to get to. You you have to fly or, or somehow get to Sapporo, you know, Chitose Airport, and then you have to rent a car or I guess you could probably get a bus or take a train, but you have to get an hour away, further away from there. It's like alongside the kind of Southern coastline of Hokkaido. Wait, Matt, I've got an idea, a three hour tour. We can, we can do it, man. We can, we can wash up on the shores of, of snowy Noboribetsu. We can trade our clothes for toys. It'll be great. Fan has exciting news. For Force 5 and Starblazer fans, a large variety of Force 5 and Starblazer action figures are still available only at Mr. Big Toyland Waltham. The Force 5 and Starblazer collections include an incredible array of Shogun warriors, robots, and ships made of high-quality plastic and die-cast metal. These figures and models feature incredible detail, and construction will offer the collector years of enjoyment. Visit Mr. Big Toyland on 399 Moody Street. So that was episode 75 of the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast. We want to thank everyone for listening, and we want to also ask you to support our show, spread the word, spread the love, spread the, I don't know, anything as long as it's not involving nuisance streaming. Sell the house, sell the kids. I'm never coming home. I'm never coming home. From Gilligan's Island ever again. (laughs) See you next time. Bye. See you next time, people.